Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I'm your host as always. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. Renoites is the local podcast where I talk to all kinds of people who are doing interesting and important work here in the biggest little city. Today on the podcast, my guest is Jackie Duran. She is the current vice president of the Wild West Access Fund, a Nevada-based abortion fund. Abortion rights and abortion access have been issues at the forefront of the political world for decades now, basically my entire life, and especially so this year with the overturning of Roe vs. Wade. One of the ways that abortion rights advocates work to maintain access is to help fund abortion services for people in need of assistance, and these abortion funds have appeared and grown all over the country. It was a very informative and interesting conversation and a very timely one. Thanks for listening. I didn't do a Renoites live episode last month at Black Rabbit Mead, but I will be back this month in October and planning another one for November. If you haven't been following, I've been doing a monthly live taping at Black Rabbit Mead, which has been really fun, and doing bonus episodes with those live events. This month, Wednesday, October 26th, I'll be interviewing folks from the Spoken Views Poetry Collective before their annual spooky-themed poetry slam and costume party. Looking forward to seeing some friends and listeners there, and any Renoites patrons, I will buy your first drink. Just shoot me a message on Instagram, and I will meet you there, and it'll be cool to see you and get your drink. If you haven't signed up to support the podcast on Patreon, I would appreciate if you take a moment to check it out. You can go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Renoites. It's a way to support the show financially. This is a community-focused and entirely listener-funded project that I do hope to eventually make financially sustainable. So please check out Patreon. If you're a current patron, come get a drink. It'd be fun to see you at this event or the one next month. If you have any guest suggestions, any ideas for topics for episodes, please shoot me an email at connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. We are reaching the end of this season, and then it'll be time for me to be finding more guests for next season. So please send in your thoughts and reach out. Really appreciate it. You can also find me on Instagram, of course, at Renoites. And now, this week's guest, Jackie Duran. Jackie Duran, welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is so exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. So you are, I didn't ask your title. I'm sorry. What do you do with the Wild West Access Fund? Yeah, no worries. I'm the vice president of the board of the Wild West Access Fund of Nevada. Is there a full name? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I always see. I know the website is Wild West Fund. So I always think of it as Wild West Fund, but Wild West Access Fund is the full name. Yeah, but you know, just like my full name is Jacqueline, I go by Jackie. The Wild <laughs> right. West Fund. For, yeah. Right. So tell me a little bit about what the Wild West Access Fund is. It's an abortion fund. I know that. But a lot of people are not familiar with the concept of abortion funds. So can you just explain a little bit about what Wild West Access Fund is and what they do? And then also how you got involved with WWAF? Yeah. So the Wild West Fund is an abortion fund, like you mentioned, and we provide financial assistance to people seeking abortions in the state of Nevada, whether that's Nevadans who are going to a local clinic or that is someone traveling from out of state into our state because there have been so many abortion bans from, you know, Oklahoma to Texas to Arizona, although there's some good news out of there over the weekend. But we support folks financially. We also provide financial logistical support. So if folks need a hotel room or they need gas cards to get from, like, let's say Elko to Reno for an appointment, Mm -hmm. we'll pay for their gas cards and their gas. And then lastly, we provide some emotional support. That's really where we're hoping to expand and do abortion doula related work. But Mm -hmm at least for the the very minimal work that we do, it's just providing a support for someone who just wants to talk about either their decision or who wants to talk about how nervous they might be that they don't have enough money. And then potentially if we're driving folks, which I've done before a couple months ago, and the person just wanted someone that was there that was non-judgmental. So mm-hmm. we kind of support folks in a three-prong approach. Gotcha. How did you get involved with the organization? Have you been part of it since the beginning or? No, I joined, let's see, like six months in. So we're a little baby fund. Mm -hmm. We got started in June of 2021 by Carla Ramazan and Maureen Scott, who were, who are two young women who saw that Nevada didn't have as a robust as an abortion fund as we could have had 
or we can have, I guess. And they also saw that there's an organization called the National Network of Abortion Funds, and there was no fund listed under Nevada. They wanted to create something that was supporting folks. It started out as a mutual aid project. Just anybody who donated to Carla or Maureen's Venmo, then someone else who was like, hey, I need financial support, we would just give them funds. I started with the board, I want to say in the fall, like this time last year, so about six months into the fund. And then we officially became a 501c3 nonprofit in December slash January of this year. And in January, I became or I was elected to be the VP. Oh, gotcha. What was the process like going from just a very grassroots mutual aid kind of organization to being an official kind of 501c3 with certain rules and filing and that kind of stuff? Is that was that a difficult process? Or how has that been experience been as you've grown? That's a great question. And one that I don't know, because other brilliant people did that. (laughs) (laughs) Not me. I know it was a lot of talking to lawyers folks who are nonprofit lawyers and work with a bunch of our partners who either their rate was really affordable or they did a pro bono as well as accountants so that we could get all of our filings and our paperwork and everything kind of set. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the extent. I was like a just a regular board member, which regular doesn't mean anything (laughs) because all of us do some kind of work, some significant amount of work actually. Mm -hmm. And So I'm not sure, but the smart people on our team talked to other smart people and did it. Gotcha. You mentioned the National Network of Abortion Funds, and I know that's a, it is what it sounds like. It's a network of all of these various local abortion funds. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship? Is that something that is helpful for you to let people find the Wild West Fund? Or what is the goal of that collaboration? Yeah. So what it looks like now is that we are able to connect with other funds across the country prior to... June of 2021, Nevada was one of five states that didn't have a fund, at least not that was listed with NNAF. And now there are four states. And I believe we're supporting or have at least given some resources to Delaware about how we started our fund so that Mm. they could try to recreate something. And so what it allows us to do is have really strong connections with either our surrounding states. So I'll take Utah as an example. They're our strongest partner, the Utah Abortion Fund. And when they have folks traveling to mostly Las Vegas, because it's more accessible than Reno, but when they have folks traveling in state, we like text each other and we're like, okay, I can get a driver or, oh, they need $100. No worries. Can I do it or can you do it? So it gives us a starting point and a connection. Mm-hmm. Um, it also They also give us any resources that might be needed, especially for practical support. So how to maintain both anonymity for our callers um, and callers is what we name folks who are seeking financial or logistical support for an abortion, mm-hmm. as well as they regrant a lot of their funds to other funds, whether that's for legal support, for us to hire a lawyer, any kind of rapid response work, especially after Roe fell in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization in June. And then lastly, we do solidarity pledges, and it has just expanded our network of that. So prior to joining the fund, we like knew a few surrounding states, funds, but then afterwards we're connected to folks on the East Coast and the Midwest who we may not have otherwise connected with. And if folks have a, a significant financial need and you know they need $12,000 and they ask other funds for solidarity pledges, we might be able to send them $200, something along those lines. So that's still like collectively pulling our money together and we have our larger reach to support one another. Gotcha. You mentioned that it started last year, and I know this year has been uh, a lot going on with abortion rights. What prompted the starting of the fund here? Obviously, it's you know an ongoing concern, but was there anything in particular last year that got everyone motivated to make this happen? Yeah, a couple of things, and I definitely don't want to speak for Carla and Maureen, but I think from what they've shared before, it is that when they Googled an abortion fund in Nevada— they weren't finding anybody, or if they did, there is a smaller fund called the Silver State Hope Fund, um, mostly based in Las Vegas. But I know a few years ago when I was in college and started volunteering at Planned Parenthood and started volunteering in like the reproductive rights and justice spaces, I tried contacting them because someone asked me, like, I need money, what do I do? And I had heard of the concept of an abortion fund, but I wasn't sure if we had one in the state. 
And I contacted them several times for a few years and we didn't hear back. So we thought they were inactive. I think they were for a period of time and Mm -hmm. then are now growing because of the need. But Carla and Maureen, I think, saw that when they Googled support, financial support in Nevada, there wasn't really anybody there to support us outside of the individual like patient support that some Planned Parenthood health centers had or still have. And so they decided to create a fund. I think Carla maybe got like a thousand dollar grant from school because she's a she's a very smart cookie, um, <laughs> is currently getting her master's in China. So she just moved there last last month, August, hmm. one of those. And with a thousand dollars, she was able to start really through grassroots, word of mouth, social media. And now we've become this huge organization who has helped, I want to say, over 150 callers, um, definitely distributed at this point over $100,000 in support. I want to say that number probably has increased since we do practical support now and mm-hmm. flights are not cheap. But right. yeah, I think that's really the core of it. Just they saw a need and they responded to that need with community and support. Yeah. Are you mostly based here in Reno? I am, but our board members, which are the folks who run the fund, we have no paid staff as of right now. Our hope is that we are contracting a person to run the intake line, which is what we call the forum and the the system that we set up for callers to ask for financial assistance. Mm-hmm. We're hoping that we have someone that we can pay as a contractor to be the program manager and support this work full time because everybody else on the board that is a working board works full time. And so it's hard to juggle this work and our day jobs to pay the bills. But all of us kind of do that work. And half of us are based up here in Reno and half of us are based in Vegas. Our hope is to expand to rural communities or at the very least be able to give information out and build more relationships with folks. Because Nevada only has abortion providers in Washoe County, so here in Reno, and in Clark County down in Vegas. And so the rest of the state is left without a provider. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the rurals in Nevada, because we're an interesting state where we have a couple big population centers and then a lot of rural areas, and there's no abortion services outside of Clark County and Washoe County, right? So Elko and Wendover and like all of these areas that are pretty far flung from where we are. How does the fund work with the rural communities? Is there a lot of the the transportation? Is that the goal to kind of make the fund available for everyone throughout the state? Yeah, it's currently set up that if you need to travel for any reason, we can provide support. So locally, that might look like if someone doesn't have a ride here in Reno to either the local Planned Parenthood Health Center on 5th Street or the West End Women's Clinic down by the airport. One of our volunteers uh, or one of our board members, including myself, will drive the person to their appointment and stay with them. Mm -hmm. If there are folks who are traveling outside of the two counties and they need money for gas, a hotel to stay the night if they're traveling long distances, we'll provide that as well. Nevada has a um, only provides or allows abortions up till 24 weeks gestational age. Afterwards, folks have to travel to mostly Boulder, Colorado is where we refer folks to. We'll support folks who need to travel out of state. And then for in terms of access, um, to try to help mitigate the lack of access in the rest of the state. Prior to 10 weeks, you can take the abortion pills and get those sent to your home via mail by way of telehealth. Mm-hmm. And so we work with Plan C pills, Aid Access, and I believe Carefem, Carefem, who will have a provider do a telehealth appointment and then send you the prescriptions. Oh, right on. Yeah, I have some questions about the abortion pill thing too, because it's yeah. The the process of how people get abortions has changed a lot. The cost of abortions has changed a lot. So I do have some questions about that, too. But first, this year, obviously, Roe versus Wade overturned. What have you seen since then? Like, obviously, there is a much bigger need now for abortion support services. So what has it been like from the inside of the fund as more attention has kind of come to the issue in just even recent months? Yeah, it's been Wild in a few different ways. One is we've definitely seen an increase in folks traveling from out of state into Nevada. Again, mostly Las Vegas because the flights are a little bit 
cheaper mm-hmm. down there than up here, as well as the anonymity aspect of it. So saying that you're going for vacation or, you know, a trip with your friends, mm-hmm. very different, especially as states start to potentially criminalize folks. So with that, we've seen, I think prior to prior to Dobbs, we saw about five to six travelers a week. Um, post Dobbs, I think we see double that. But even then, prior to SB8 in Texas in September of last year, when it was implemented, we didn't see any travelers. So there were a few months when the fund started with, that we didn't have any travelers. And then as soon as SB8 went into effect, September 1st of 2021, we saw folks from Texas traveling here. So it has been increasing, not slowly, but like definitely rapidly and exponentially after these kind of key dates. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the abortion bills, because that's something I'm really interested in, how people get abortions. Is that something that's a big part of the strategy to avoid ha- people having to travel? Like you mentioned they're only available up to a certain period. So can you talk a little bit about medication abortion? Because I think that a lot of people, when they think of abortion, they think of a procedure in a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And a lot of abortions are not a procedure in a doctor's office. They're a prescription. So can you just talk a little bit about how medication abortion works and what role it plays in the work that you do? Totally. And I'm not a medical professional. (laughs) I'll I'll start there. I get queasy at blood. My sister and my brother-in-law are both nurses, met in nursing school. I don't do any of that. (laughs) But from what I know from my work, the abortion pills, because there are two of them, you might just hear as abortion pill, but Mife and Miso are safe, I want to say up to 14 weeks gestational age. However, by ruling of the FDA, it's only allowed prior to 10 weeks Mm. uh, gestational age. And that's across kind of the country and across the board. And so folks will take Normally, what it looks like and what it looks like in Nevada, because we do have a physician's only ruling, uh, so physician meaning an MD, so folks who are nurse practitioners or physician's assistants can't prescribe the medication abortion, which in itself is a barrier, because when laws were written back in the day, we didn't have all of the, the expanded kind of rules that folks can give medication or can give medical care like we did then, or at least it was much smaller then. And so it is a barrier to have physicians only. But in Nevada, if you do a telehealth or you go into the office, you'll take one of your pills in that office under the supervision of a physician. And then you'll take the other two, three, or four. It kind of depends. Um, Every case is so different, but you'll take the other at home. And what it does is has a similar effect to a miscarriage and the contractions that that kind of go with folks who have miscarriages. And so the kind of end results are similar. And that's also important for safety reasons, which is how the medication kind of shows up in your bloodstream is that it doesn't. And so as we're going to see folks be more criminalized and people who are able to get pregnant and either decide to have an abortion or who miscarriage, because we've seen that happen, not not just like in other countries, but here in the States, um, we're going to see that criminalization happen more and more. But there is no blood work or no blood test that will have the difference between did you take an abortion pills or did you have a miscarriage? Mm. So you don't have to tell anybody any of the decisions that you make. And that is I'm also not a lawyer, but at the very least, like privacy is really important for folks as we're going to see criminalization happen. So that's kind of how it works when we talk about self-managed abortions, which is also becoming a big one. And one of the reasons that we don't recommend folks talk about a coat hanger or only talk about abortion as safe and legal is because we no longer live in the 70s when Roe was first decided, right? I mean, I have a little mini computer on my pocket every day, right? Like we are not in the same world that we were in. And so abortion is so much more safe and so much more accessible than it was even back then. And so self-managed abortions is just that, is you overseeing your own healthcare, you overseeing how you no longer are pregnant and you can do that with the abortion pills as well as other ways that look like more holistic remedies or more cultural remedies. 
But anything that is not under the supervision of a medical professional kind of counts as self-managed abortions. Mm -hmm. But the abortion pills are still, in in that case, self-managed abortions or being overseen by a doctor. It's still one of the safest medical things (laughs) that you can do. So like when you get your wisdom teeth out, for example, the infection rate of you getting that incision and that cut infected is higher than an infection when you get an abortion. Hmm. So it's still one of the safest medical procedures. The idea of abortions is being super tied in with the normal healthcare system, but also limits with the normal healthcare system. Like the Hyde Amendment doesn't let things like Medicaid pay for abortions. So can you just talk a little bit about kind of where abortion access and the traditional medical system kind of overlap or what doesn't work about the way that we've done abortions in the past and why self-managed and other ways of doing things are a solution right now? Yeah, totally. Um, Well, point blank, abortion is healthcare. And what we're seeing right now is a lot of, well, this type of abortion is not really an abortion. It's about saving X, Y, and Z. Or this reason is much more valuable or valid than this other reason. At the end of the day, it's all abortion. When folks have an ectopic pregnancy, the medical recommendation is an abortion. And so I often see a lot of anti-abortion folks say, oh, well, that's not true. Um, It's something else. Or they're trying to, you know, use some like very fancy language, it is still an abortion. And Mm. so that's why when we see any kind of ban, and then we try to make all of these exceptions, what you're doing is deciding what is valid for people. And also, do folks need to give you some of their hardest moments in order to just access that healthcare? For someone who does have a pregnancy that is not viable, and it's either the life of the pregnant person, or the baby, or the fetus kind of um I like to I like to bring compassion into the work. So for folks who do want to have a, a child and do want to be pregnant, and for them, if the fetus and the pregnancy is a baby, I'm gonna call their baby a baby, right? Versus someone else who's like, I don't want to be pregnant. This is a fetus. I'll call the fetus a fetus. And so I think like having compassion. But anyway, for someone who is going to lose part of their family or their own life potentially. Why should they go to a politician and an anti and just be like, cry and and say some of the most like vulnerable and heartbreaking moments when it should really be about being with your family member, being with your doctor to try to make the best decision. And that is so case by case all the time. So Mm -hmm. to have any ban is to put folks who are the most vulnerable kind of in, in harm's way. And so then when I think of abortion not being as accessible or kind of not tied in with healthcare. I actually think it's kind of the opposite. And so I, I've i done reproductive justice work in a, a couple different ways. When I lived in Oregon, I got to interview someone who was part of the Jane Collective of Chicago, which in the late 60s, early 70s would support folks in getting an abortion, so similar to an abortion fund. But then they themselves learned from a doctor who taught them how to perform an abortion. And so they rented out an apartment in Chicago and people who were pregnant and wanted an abortion would go there. They would perform the abortion in their living room. And this is how she described it to me. And then they would sleep in one of the bedrooms to get rest and they would have food. The people would really take care of them. But abortion wasn't as stigmatized as it is now. It isn't in in her eyes, it wasn't seen as something that was shameful or something that was um, that folks like to say folks have a lot of regret after they get their abortion, which is false. She just happened to mention that it was treated as like a decision that was a little harder because it wasn't as accessible, but it didn't come with all the shame and stigma. It mm-hmm. didn't come with folks at abortion provider clinics throwing baby doll parts at you or having those really awful, like explicit pictures of what are not fetuses, right? And they wouldn't have folks like just yelling at you in the same way. And so I think the way that abortion stigma has really become part of our everyday lives has just really gotten worse throughout the decades from when Roe was first here to now. Yeah, the changing public perception and the way that we talk about abortion 
is really interesting to me because I remember maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, the safe, legal and rare was the slogan of the moderate abortion supporters. But that implication that it should be rare suggests that it is a bad thing. So it should be rare. And that's changed a lot. And a lot of the messaging that I see from the Wild West Fund, like on your Instagram, is very unapologetically pro-abortion. Like one of the things that says, fuck your abortion ban, we're having abortions forever. So that's like a very straightforward pro-abortion sentiment. So can you talk a little bit about why that is the the communication that you think is important now, right? So why did safe, legal, and rare not meet the need of people who need abortions? And why is this unapologetically pro-abortion, we're not apologizing for anything approach, the one that Wild West Fund and others seem to be taking right now? Yeah, definitely. Abortion is healthcare. We'll always have abortions. We've always had abortions. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing, right? It's not like, I don't know, open heart surgery that someone performed in the early 1900s. I'm also not a historian, (laughs) Um, right? But it's not something that is relatively new in our history. It's something that has been performed throughout centuries in indigenous communities, in other communities across the the world. We're just seeing it now as something that is seen as really stigmatized or taboo or something that we don't talk about. And so that has led us nowhere, really, mm-hmm. right? Like the stigmatization of abortion has not led us to folks who are able to get health care, has not led us into a place where folks can talk about it in order to be safe. When I think of this, I think of like Rosie Jimenez, who is often dubbed as the first victim of the Hyde Amendment. In 1972, Roe became the law of the land under the Supreme Court. In 1976, the Hyde Amendment was passed in our appropriations bills, and it has been passed every year since. Appropriations, really fancy word for budget and money to keep our government running. And that does not allow any federal funding to go towards abortion. So For anyone who's a federal employee, the military, Peace Corps volunteers, um, they are not able to have their abortion covered by their insurance. And so Rosie, Rosie Jimenez was a Latina woman in, I believe, the Rio Grande Valley of Texas and found herself not able to afford an abortion. And so she traveled to Mexico and unfortunately ended up getting a unsafe abortion there and passed away shortly after something that could have been prevented if the U.S. didn't have Hyde. And globally, there's definitely a movement for all countries, all nations, all regions to have access to something that is healthcare and that we've had for centuries. So when we see many folks who have passed away or who have gotten harmed or many folks who haven't been able to access an abortion and have had unwanted pregnancies and how that has changed their life. Having things being hush has just never helped any of us. And mm-hmm. so when we say we're pro-abortion, when we say we are pro-using abortion as birth control, we're pro-doing whatever you want with your body is because it comes down to kind of one of two things. One is that bodily autonomy. You're the person who gets to decide with whoever uh kind of counsel makes sense for you. So for some folks, it's their families, their chosen family, their friends, their faith leaders, right? Their community at large, whatever it might be, you get to make that decision for yourself. And then the other is about access, which is uh, if I talk about how abortion can and should be used as birth control, it's also because we don't have access to birth control Mm. or we don't have access to all of these other basic things that we should have access to. Or if we do, if you know we say you can go out and get birth control pills, can folks afford it, right? Even with the passing of the Affordable Care Act under the Obama administration, it doesn't often mean that just because it's legal, it's accessible. And that's exactly what we saw with Roe too. Just because it's legal, it doesn't mean folks can financially afford it doesn't mean folks can travel and logistically afford it. Mm -hmm. And for folks who are already the most exploited or the most vulnerable, so thinking undocumented folks, Black, Indigenous, and folks of color, disabled folks, access dependent on the systems of power already exist. 
add another access to how healthcare is not accessible in this country. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of bombarding folks. And so being unapologetic is about addressing all barriers that exist in order to undo all those barriers. And so we won't shy away from it because everybody deserves the autonomy to decide whether and when to have a family and to have that family in a place that is safe where they have the social, political, and economic power. So while we are an abortion fund and we do work with the reproductive justice framework started by Black women, or they coined the phrase in, I believe, 94, to kind of discuss how often the mainstream feminist movement or reproductive rights movement was really um, just about being able to like go to work or equal pay. But for some folks, it was, even if I do go to work, I'm paid less than, or yeah, you might want birth control, but for women in Puerto Rico or Mexican women in California, they were being forcibly sterilized without their consent or knowledge, right? And so it's just that basic autonomy that folks were asking for and really demanding. And so again, while we're an abortion fund, the RJ framework really tells us and guides us that we're support you to have an abortion, but we're also going to fight for you to have your family if you want them and be able to have and raise that family however you want to. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it, I think, briefly, this messaging or concept of back alley abortions, coat hanger symbolism, those kind of things. I think a lot of well-meaning people on things like social media after Roe v. Wade, you see things like memes that suggest we're going back to a more dangerous time of abortions. Can you talk a little bit about why that is not helpful and how people should be actually talking about abortions, not necessarily to further stigmatize them? Yeah. Well, like I mentioned, we're no longer in the 70s. The accessibility of the abortion pills really give folks access in a way that we haven't seen before. And we're able to to really support folks when they need that, whether at the fund or kind of in general, right? And what I mean by that is if you have a if you take the abortion pills and you need to go to urgent care or your ER, like I mentioned, there's no way for them to test if you had an abortion or if you took the pills and you can say you're you, you know you're there for medical attention. That doesn't really look in the same way as it might have done before and it might have been before. And for for pills, I think what we're seeing is folks are ordering those from other countries outside of the US, outside of even Mexico, but folks are being able to talk, share best practices, resources, you know, globalization does often cause harm, but is also helpful in terms of I can, you know, connect with folks who are doing this work in Mexico and ask them, um, you know, is are you seeing X, Y, and Z? Or we can go on the internet, like, should I be concerned if I'm bleeding too much? Okay. Or is this normal? Okay. I'm, I'm bleeding the right amount or whatever it might be. And so for folks to say, you know, using really stigmatizing language, like back alley abortions or the coat hanger, what it does is is really confuse folks and and spread misinformation that there isn't a safe option. And so for many folks who aren't in the everyday know-how of there being abortion pills, because we don't talk about it in general, we only say it's there's surgical abortion and you're doing X, Y, and Z, which is really messaging from antis Mm. that is also not accurate. Also, there's nothing surgical. There is no surgery involved. There's just an in-office procedure folks then aren't sure where they can go for options and aren't sure if they can get the support that they need. And so just giving accurate information for people means that we're not spreading that misinformation, means that for someone who does, you know, hear, oh, there are abortion pills, I can Google that instead, or I can have, um, I can reach out to someone instead of just being in their home and and really scared because that's what kind of misinformation might do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I brought that up thinking of kind of the the well-meaning person who's trying to advocate for more abortion access, but they're using this kind of stigmatizing and fear-based terminology and ideas. But there's also, you mentioned the antis. There are people who are actively working to limit abortion access very, very actively. So can you talk a little bit about how you address that? Obviously, you're providing a lot of information for people who do want abortions, but how do you deal with, you know, a giant movement that is actively trying to eliminate access to abortion? What is the the role of the fund or yourself in 
addressing the the antis? Ooh, that's just a big question. Um, <laughs> depends on the day. I feel <laughs> like some days I'm like, man, really fuck you. I'm not going to talk to you. Other days it's like, hmm, do I feel like you're movable and you want to actually have a conversation? And then other days I'm like, here's a pamphlet. I'm just going <laughs> to, I don't want to talk to you, but I also don't want to cuss you out. So I guess it, it kind of depends. Let's see. I feel like the role of the fund is one that like really solid educational foundation of these are the facts. This is a non-judgmental space. We're going to give you the information you need without putting judgment on you. We're not going to put any judgment on you. Like mm -hmm. your scenario is your own. It's not better or worse than anybody else's. Obviously there are exceptions when it comes to um, domestic violence or interpersonal violence issues or situations I should say. And, and what we try to do in those circumstances is that we'll fully fund someone's abortion if that's what they ask for. If they reach out to us and as we're talking to them, they say, you know, I'm really scared because of X, Y, and Z, we'll try to provide both financial support, but also resources like, do you know Safe Embrace in Reno? Or is there someone else you can talk to? There's Tu Casa Latina in town who can help too. So we try to connect as much as possible. And so our, our role is, again, that giving you a, a, a space that you can come to. And because someone you know has had an abortion, someone you love has had an abortion, regardless of their political stance, regardless of their um, if they're anti or pro-abortion folks. I believe it's one in four women, but that number is probably higher because women doesn't account for any of the non-binary and trans folks who are able to get pregnant and do have abortions. And so we all know someone, right? Like we all, we can count four people. Mm -hmm. One of them probably had an abortion. And so our role is to make sure that folks have those resources and be, like you mentioned, unapologetic about it. We're not going to shame you. You can come to us. We're also not going to take anyone's shit. And if you feel unsafe, we'll go with you. So for myself, I, uh, a few months ago, someone needed a ride to their appointment and they didn't want to share with their roommate or the person that they were seeing at the time. And so I picked them up and I stayed with them throughout their her appointment, walked in with them, asked them about their their child because they were already a parent. And they just mentioned that they felt really safe and they felt like they didn't know who else to go to in their own circle. And so having someone who was so compassionate was helpful and it made them feel like they weren't alone. And so that's the other part is just seeing people as humans and giving them humanity and and giving them that compassion. And then when it comes to antis, the idea of abortion as something that's political is really interesting to me. And it's really rooted in white supremacy. Um, and so a brief, again, I'm not a historian, <laughs> but a brief uh, history lesson is, uh, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, we saw a lot of liberation movements pop up or continue. So when I think of the 60s, the civil rights movement, we had a growing feminist movement, really the kind of start of LGBTQ movement. Well, actually not even the start. Uh, 69 was the Stonewall riots, right? We saw all of these liberation movements that were putting people first. And because of that, I think conservative folks and politicians were seeing that they were losing their base of people to elect them, their base of folks who were on their side and they kind of saw this group of folks who were more conservative religious folks who were really extremist. And I really like to name that because the majority of folks who are religious support abortion. I think it's like 59, 60% of folks who are religious support abortion, but they're like in any group, they're a group of extremists. And so this kind of conservative political sphere saw that in order to build their base, they needed to align with this extremist religious anti-abortion group. And so they adopted abortion as one of their key issues and then started building their base. I really like to thank Reagan in the 80s for a lot of my problems, even though I wasn't born in the mm -hmm. 80s. He, fuck him. I hope he is rotting in hell. <laughs> um, but really from there is how we see abortion as this like stark political topic, right? Like mm -hmm. when I think of the person from the Jane Collective who in the late 60s and 70s mentioned that when she would join folks at a doctor and and that doctor would perform an abortion, there weren't people screaming outside of the clinic yelling at you, 
you didn't need clinic escorts because there was no one throwing doll parts at you, right? Mm -hmm. Versus now, well, A, we don't even say the word abortion, right? From our president, Joe Biden, to local politicians, to your neighbor, we don't say abortion, and it's really, like, taboo. Do you find that the expression reproductive rights is kind of sidestepping and maybe not as helpful as it could be for addressing the actual issue of abortion? Oh my God, absolutely. Yeah. Because the, and I will say one of two things. One, it's not all reproductive rights right now that are under attack. And I'll put a little asterisk there, but it is abortion. Mm -hmm. It's abortion that is being particularly alienated and stigmatized. The little asterisk is because I think abortion leads to that conversation about bodily autonomy. And so even the decision to have birth control or the decision to get a vasectomy, right? Or the decision to get an STI test so that you're being safe for yourself and your partners, all of those things under uh, more conservative folks, I think are going to be under attack. Mm. And we're seeing that a little bit when, you know, Justice Clarence Thomas says that he wants to go after same-sex marriage next. Um, so really abortion is about bodily autonomy and we're gonna, going to see reproductive rights really being impacted more and more. However, it's abortion right now that mm-hmm. is being stigmatized. So um, yeah, when I when I think of, you know, antis and the kind of role that we live in, they they really stemmed or came about from conservative folks and politicians seeing that people, especially exploited folks like black folks, women and trans and non-binary folks were fighting for their rights, wanted to diminish those rights. And so this is th- this is what we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that bodily autonomy. We're seeing, you know, uh, critical race theory, quote unquote. We're seeing immigration. All of these things are kind of being under attack, all from the same entity. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I know is used as a tool to reduce the stigma around abortion is talking about abortions and not just generally, but specific stories. I know there was a hashtag a a long time ago now, the shout your abortion and the general idea that, like you said, we all know someone who's had an abortion. We love someone who's had an abortion. So sharing personal stories, I think, is probably an important part to let people know that abortion is not the end of the world kind of thing that is described as. So can you talk a little bit about the sharing of personal stories and why that's an important part of destigmatizing? Yeah, Well, if I gave you all facts and just talked about research, that would feel really boring, right? Like, I know for me, when I was in lecture in undergrad, I would would snooze. Versus when someone's sharing something about their own life, something that's really, that's personal, that's vulnerable, what it does is connects us to our values in a way. And by that, I mean someone who shares, and I often get folks both at the fund, but also in my day job, (laughs) who share their abortion stories. What they really emphasize is that they're thinking about their family, they're thinking about their future, they're thinking about their health, and right now is not the time, or ever is not the time. And to me, as a person hearing that, I think, like, I also care about my family. I also care that right now is not the best time for me to have a child, but I know I want a child in the future. And that's the case for the majority of folks who have abortions are already apparent to one or or more people. The majority of folks who have an abortion don't regret the decision. And also, we're all human. We all have the full range of our emotions from sadness, anger, to relief, to happiness. And so to say that no one feels regret or no one feels a certain type of way is also not fair to folks because all of their emotions are valid and folks can feel that way. But we won't know that unless we ask folks. And so because so many people do have an abortion and you know someone, you love someone who has had an abortion, they haven't shared with you. It's probably because you haven't created a space where they feel safe enough to tell you. And if they have shared with you, it's because you have created that space. It's because you're not judgmental. I think of like my own life where I have two really important folks, two of the closest people in my life who have had an abortion. One in particular had two abortions when she was 19 and she had to fundraise from her friends. And I remember like 
she she's a family member and I remember her talking to her sisters about it and her sisters absolutely like stigmatized the shit out of her and you know said x y and z like you're never going to be a parent after this etc cetera, etc cetera. and now she's a mother to three and she was able to get her career started and she made the decision that was best for her and so when we hear these stories we really do see that it is unique it is not something that we can put one law on to either ban or not ban, although we should not ban. Or if I'm rephrasing that, I think it's when we hear these stories, what we do is we we can't just put one size fits all to any person's situation. And then when we think of the folks who are the most vulnerable for the folks who do have stories and do include violence or do include the health of the pregnant person or the child, we want to give them as much compassion and love as possible for what they're going through. And so I'm not going to decide and make a law that determines just because the health of your you or your child is at stake, that's okay. But you, who has had something violent happen to you, you're not okay. And then are you going to ask every single person to share the most vulnerable parts of themselves? No, they should share as they want to and as they're free to. And for folks who have stories that are so much more vulnerable in a place of where they're hurt, we should support them regardless of their decision. And so stories, what they do again is connect us to our emotions, connect us to our value. They are values. They really humanize something that is seen as this taboo or this ick. But we put a face to to the name. We put a face to to these movements. And we see that folks come from all walks of life, from folks who are rich to poor, from folks uh, across the political spectrum folks across genders, from your neighbor to someone who lives in a completely different part of the country from you. But at the end of the day, all we want is the same thing, which is that ability to make those decisions for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Abortion has traditionally been thought of as a women's rights issue, but I notice that you use the word pregnant people. I know there's a lot of conversation about the language that we use to be more inclusive of trans non-binary people who can and do have abortions as well. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of overlap between the abortion rights movement and the, I guess, gender identity movement? Or where do you think the importance is in using more inclusive language? And do you find that you get pushback on that from some people? I know there are a lot of, like, quote, unquote, feminists who are pretty critical of the inclusive language, even though there is no denying that people of all genders have abortions. So can you just talk a little bit about the the gender inclusivity part of the messaging that you do? Yeah, we're looking at you, Joanne Rowling. I like to say that uh, Daniel Radcliffe wrote Harry Potter, um, <laughs> but you can also take this out if Warner <laughs> Brothers is going to come out. Um, uh, well, the tie between you know abortion access, reproductive justice, and gender and queer and trans liberation is, if I think of a Venn diagram, it's a circle. Like, it's the same thing. And that's really simplifying it in a lot of ways. But in a lot of other ways, I think it's being really realistic that the fight for bodily autonomy, for you to be able to make the decision for yourself with the support of your family and your counsel, whatever that means for you, your faith, um, is also the same decision of you being able to be out and free or be able to get the same resources and opportunities to have the same rights as anybody else, regardless of who you love, what your sexual orientation is, what your gender identity or expression is, and to be able to do all of those things without violence. I think of Black and other women of color, trans women of color who just want to have access without violence, who want the same ability to go to their doctor or to uh, get a job or to do X, Y, and Z is the same fight that we have for folks who are able to get pregnant and want an abortion to be able to go to their doctor, go to their job, right? Get their insurance, et cetera, et cetera. It's very similar. And it's not similar in the way that we uh, do need to be in solidarity and kind of allies to one another because for cis women, so women who are assigned women at birth, and then that's still the the gender that they identify with now, we are not 
we don't face the same levels of discrimination and oppression as trans women do. And so while it's already hard for us to, let's say, for example, get an abortion for trans men or non-binary people who are able to get pregnant, they then have to fight for them to just basically be seen as a human and to be seen as who they are without being dead named or without being questioned for their identity and then try to still circumvent the barriers that exist for abortion. And so for those of us who are cis and are doing this work in abortion access, we do need to fight all of the fights because that's really how we get access overall. When we think about like undoing all oppressions from the folks who are most vulnerable, so that's undoing oppressions around white supremacy and anti-Black racism, undo oppression with like the genocide and the taking of land from indigenous folks, ableism that exists, capitalism. At the end of the day, if you are supporting the folks who are in this hierarchy or at the bottom, the people at the top are also going to benefit, right? It's just about making sure everybody benefits. And Mm so we're not taking away anybody's rights. So when I hear of a JK Rowling or any quote unquote feminist that says, well, you have to have a uterus to be a woman and you are only a woman if you have a uterus. I think what what is just fighting against this gender existentialism or just making decisions about someone else? Why do you get to? Mm. Um, if we are fighting for liberation for all of us, then you're, you'd be fine too, right? Like yeah. you as a woman would not have barriers either, just like this person as a non-binary person wouldn't have barriers. So to me, it's like, it's so much easier to think about liberation as a collective. Like mm-hmm. I'm a very lazy person. I'm very real. <laughs> um, to me, I'm like, if we do liberation across the board, it's easier than trying to nitpick who gets rights and who doesn't. Because at the end of the day, what that recreates is oppression just against who. So yeah, I think for folks who only talk about women or only talk about uh, women who have uteruses as folks who are the only people who get pregnant really alienate everybody across the board because there are cis women or or women who have uteruses who are not able to get pregnant and have been trying for years and what we do is alienate them and we really ostracize them that you're not a woman since you're not able to get pregnant and I'm not going to go and tell someone who's not able to have children but really wants to hey you're not a woman Mm. the fuck is that no and then on the flip side, I'm not going to deny a trans man who is able to get pregnant from accessing health care because he's the one who needs both either prenatal care, if that's what he wants, or uh, an abortion. Because at the end of the day, health care really doesn't see gender in that way. That's a whole nother discussion about mm-hmm. like medical racism. But yeah, that's what I think when I when I think of these like trans exclusionary radical feminists or TERFs is that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is really harming everybody, including the people who they think they're supporting. Yeah. I have one more messaging question. I'm not trying to introduce a right-wing talking points, but I know that I am kind of doing that a little bit, but it's just because I'm very interested in messaging and like Mm -hmm. what draws people to movements and pushes people away from movements. And one of the things that I've seen also is like on the fanny packs that you sell, it says fund abortion, not cops. And I think about the aspect of policing and abortion, those things you talked about, the criminalization. So is the pro-abortion movement, does it have to be inherently opposed to the type of policing that we have? Is like is policing at the root of a lot of these abortion issues as well as just the medical access? Like, is that part of the reason that you specifically call out funding police as part of the pro-abortion movement? Yes. <laughs> Period. And to elaborate, <laughs> um, to elaborate, because abortion is based on white supremacy, upholds white supremacy, policing as an institution of white supremacy, if we are fighting for abortion access, it does mean we want to undo all the things and all the institutions as that white supremacy upholds. Policing is part of that, right? Just like the legal system as we know it now, just like the medical racism just like the education system that denies people from even knowing that the genocide of indigenous folks happened in this country, right? Where we erase all of that and then really erase the harm that it's still causing. So we do need to be anti-cop, just like we need to be anti-capitalism, just like we need to be anti-putting 
profit over the environment first. Again, if we are fighting for all liberations across the board, all of us will thrive. Mm. All of us will be able to get the rights, the recognition, the resources, the the autonomy opportunities that we need. And that includes policing. To really put it kind of more concretely, it looks like, um, I believe her name is Lizette in South Texas, who after SB8 in, in Texas, ended up in the hospital for for excess bleeding. And I think she shared with her nurse that she had an abortion. I'm pretty sure that's what happened in the spring this year. And that nurse ended up calling the police because of SB8 and the police arrested Lizette. And we're going we're going to see so much of that continuing. And just because things are laws does not mean they're just. Just because things are in our quote-unquote judicial system does not mean they're just. Really ask anybody who is not a cis, white, wealthy male. And so the police have to uphold laws that are written to uphold white supremacy, written to uphold property over people and profit over people. And so they themselves are a tool of um, of denying abortion access or denying any kind of access overall. And so we do need to dismantle the police structure in order to achieve true abortion access mm-hmm. or else you're going to see and we have already seen folks of color like Lizette, who is also similar to Rosie Jimenez, is also a Latina from South Texas. We're going to see folks of color, disabled folks, queer and trans folks, folks who are already over-policed and face police brutality. We're going to see them then on abortion be more criminalized or not have access to money in the same way. So a white person with money who's able to travel to New York or France, the police is not going to arrest them and jail them, right? Or if they do, they have access to a really expensive lawyer mm-hmm. versus your everyday person who doesn't even have a $1,000 in their bank account. They will spend time in jail and they won't be able to get bail or hire a lawyer. So yeah, we need to defund cops and fund abortions. Yeah. Do you find yourself having to kind of code switch to more moderate language with people who might not be on board for the entire liberation movement, but may be more pro-abortion? Like, how do you how do you navigate that? Do you worry that some people who are maybe not all in on all of the actions that you're talking about might be turned off by some of the the things that you're doing that are adjacent to abortion access? And how do you navigate that? Yeah, I don't. (laughs) I don't tone down what I say. What I what I may say is less about like facts or like the macro or the overview. And instead, I'll use the personal story Mm -hmm. because, again, it connects us to our emotions, our values, connects us to humanity. And at the end of the day, someone who might not be um, anti-cop but is pro-abortion cares about their family and cares about their family's safety, right? That's often a lot of what we hear is public safety. And so I'll share, well, who gets to access that public safety? Is it my dad who doesn't speak English very well and has a really thick accent and when is walking in his neighborhood gets pulled over and racial profiled because he's a darker skinned man who's walking around? Is he afforded the same safety or is it only some folks? So I really try to bring in that personal story. I try to bring in that aspect of we all want the same thing. It's about what that thing looks like and how Mm. that thing is then part of our lived experiences. But then I assess myself of Am I the right messenger for that person, right? Like, if it's a dude who I know is trolling the shit out of me, I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to spend my time talking to someone who just wants to get a reaction out of me because I could use it. Like I mentioned, I'm lazy. I could <laughs> use that time playing Nintendo. I don't know, watching House of Dragon, right? Like, I'm not going to spend that time talking to you versus if it's someone who does have a genuine need for a conversation or has something that isn't about trolling, I'll sit down and and talk to them. But again, am I the right messenger? Oftentimes, and this is where allies come in, where oftentimes it's someone who shares a similar lived experience as you. So white folks talking to white folks about white supremacy and how it is all of our roles to undo white supremacy might be a better messenger than a person of color talking to that white person Mm. for a few different reasons. One, our own safety 
too, maybe that person just thinks, oh, it's just you as an exception and not necessarily the rule, right? Or when we talk about abortion, does it make most sense to have, you know, a dude talk to another dude, right? And so that's why we need folks who are accomplices, folks who are in solidarity, and that's why we need that larger liberation mindset in order to support each other in in these different roles. Where would you recommend people go to learn more about what is going on in the legal world of abortion, what is going on in the access to abortion? Obviously, your website is at wildwestfund.org. Yes, wildwestfund.org. And and where else can people go to be informed? Because there's a lot of misinformation out there. I would say probably not Twitter for figuring (laughs) out what's going on in the world of abortion access. So where would you say people should start if they want to learn more about abortion access? Yeah, great question. One is, of course, wildwestfund.org. We're on Instagram at Wild West Fund Nevada, Nevada all spelled out. We share a lot of resources there, both of exactly what you're talking about, what what does access look like in the now across the states, but also what does access in Nevada look like? Other really good resources to go to is places, fellow funds like the National Network of Abortion Funds, Indigenous Women Rising, the Center for Reproductive Rights uh, for folks who are more legal wonky (laughs) can go there. Uh, For folks who are religious, um, and this is a case in my community where a lot of folks that I know are Catholic, there are Catholics for Choice that folks can go to. So catholicsforchoice.org to really a, see that the majority of Catholics support abortion, but also be how to talk to your friends and family about it. And I know that's similar to a bunch of other religious sectors as well. Yeah, I would say start there and then have conversations with folks, right? Like, um, don't spread misinformation, of course. <laughs> make sure you have the facts and check your facts, right? Like, if there's ever a post that we make and you're like, mm, I don't know if that's true, and uh, this is the source that I'm saying, as long as it's not coming from a right wing source, we'll be like, oh, yeah, let's let's see what that's about. Oh, shit, we fucked up. We need to update that. Uh, but, you know, share information with folks, share your personal stories. You can use t- Twitter in that way to share your story and have a like a wider audience. But at the end of the day, it's we need to be compassionate with each other and compassion plus action of systems and regulations and laws is what creates change, not just I'm going to be kind to you. And that's the extent, but I'm going to, I'm going to advocate for people or things that take away your rights. That's not the same thing Mm. versus compassion and action that gives folks that compassion and ability to have those opportunities is what we need. Gotcha. What did we miss? This is, we've, we've talked a lot. Did I miss anything? What else do you want people to know about Wild West Fund or abortion access? You can donate to us. (laughs) We have a link in our website. So if you go to Wild West Fund, dot org slash donate you can donate straight there we also accept venmo and cash app um for you know any amount of money when we table at like local prides in vegas and in reno or earth days which we've done before we give information out to folks but then we also collect any amount of donations and i've definitely had people just give me a dollar and be like i don't have cash which i never have cash so i understand and they'll give us a dollar but if 100 people give us a dollar, that's $100, right? And that can be one person who says, all I need is $100 to make my appointment or all I need is $100 for gas and we can support that person. So any amount of donation is helpful. If you want to be a, like a top tier gold star, become a monthly donor for $5 a month. And that helps us in knowing and really budgeting that this time next year, we can count on your $5 and we can make sure that we at least give those $5 to someone who needs them, right? So become a monthly donor, become one of our Gold Star donors and supporters, and share about the fund. We're a little baby fund, I think 18 months old at this point. So there's still so many folks in so many communities who don't know about us. So please share information about us with your friends and family. If folks need support or financial assistance, they can come to us for what they need. Amazing. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've wanted to do an episode with Wild West Fund for a long time because I've been aware of you, I think, since very early. I think when you when you first launched or shortly after. And I'm very glad to have you on the podcast because it's such an important issue that affects so many people. It's I'm very interested in politics and it's obviously a highly politicized thing right now. And it's great to be able to sit down with someone who's really working directly 
in this world. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And welcome to my home. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest, Jackie Duran from the Wild West Access Fund. Appreciate her taking the time to tell me so much about what's going on in the world of abortion access. It's such an important issue right now, and it was great to learn more about her and her organization. If you enjoyed this week's episode, or heck, even if you didn't, I don't know, if you want to help this podcast continue to exist, if you want us to find more folks in Reno who would be interested in this show and these guests and these conversations, do me a favor and help spread the word. Word of mouth means everything to a project like this. It really is the way that people find out about the show. So best thing you can do is share posts on social media, tell your friends and family, make a post yourself. Anything you do to help get more people tuned into the show is greatly appreciated. Thank you very, very much. This season of Renoites is produced by myself and my co-producer, Lynn Lazaro. And that's all I've got for you this week. See you at Black Rabbit Mead or next Tuesday for the last episode of this season of Renoites.